I have fought for what I believed in. I have tried, to the best of my ability, to discharge those duties and meet those responsibilities that were entrusted to me. Sometimes I have succeeded, and sometimes I have failed. But always, I have taken heart from what Theodore Roosevelt once said about the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is not effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumphs of high achievements and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Richard Nixon spoke those words on August 8, 1974. In that same speech, he announced his resignation from the presidency of the United States. It was the most devastating moment in Nixon's career, and it would render him a national pariah. Regardless of what he had accomplished during his time in the White House, he would forever be remembered as the first president to resign, to resign in disgrace. In that exact moment, Nixon took comfort from the words of one of his predecessors, Theodore Roosevelt, that regardless of his failures, those who are actually in the arena deserve the credit. Whenever I hear or read this quote, I think about how we, as a country, think about success and failure. For me, these thoughts come to the forefront every four years when we have a presidential election. One person in that election has to win, and one person has to lose. The winner gets a place in history on one of the world's most exclusive lists. They are among the few who've had the privilege of being president of the United States. The runner-up is, at best, relegated to being a footnote in history and also ran, someone who is part of the scenery or the foil in future biographies of the winner. At worst, they are remembered as a loser. Their entire careers are often defined not by their achievements, but by one grand and very public defeat. Is this fair? Every four years after someone loses the presidential election, and while everyone criticizes them after the fact, I'm often reminded of Theodore Roosevelt's quote and his belief that even those who were defeated are worthy of praise because they dared to do great things. I wonder if certain candidates lose not necessarily because of their own shortcomings, but because of factors outside of their control. I sometimes wonder whether it's fair to judge these figures' entire careers by one defeat, rather than looking at the whole story. A new book explores these ideas through the lives of those who dared greatly and sought the nation's highest office, only to fall short. The book, taking inspiration from Teddy Roosevelt's legendary quote, is titled, In the Arena. You too can own In the Arena. The book is listed for $35, but you can own it for free. We have three copies to give away. 
If you click in the link in the description of this episode or go to our website, thisamericanpresident.com, you can sign up. We'll draw three names at random. They'll be the three lucky winners of a copy of In the Arena. The contest ends on August 10th, so make sure you sign up for the chance to own this beautiful and insightful book. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. guests today are Peter Shea, a longtime educator and history geek, just like me, and Tom Mayday, a photographer whose clients include ESPN, General Electric, Motorola, and Ameritrade. And they've just written a new book, which I'm very excited about. It's called In the Arena, A History of Presidential I'm sorry, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. And it's basically hot off the presses. It's available right now. It's a very, it's a beautiful book. Uh, the work that you guys did was great, uh, especially uh, the, the visual aspect of that. And Tom, since you're the photographer, we'd love to hear about that element. But yeah, thanks for being on this show. And this covers a topic that I've always been fascinated by. So I'm glad you guys wrote the book. And I started getting fascinated about the people who lost the presidency. I, I grew up fascinated by presidents, and inevitably, well, it's like every four years, there's somebody that doesn't win. And I, I first got fascinated by that during the 2000 election, when George W. Bush defeated Al Gore for the presidency, and Gore didn't just lose the election, he lost the election by 600 votes. But he lost it after that all the, all that um, that month of the recounts, and you know he he thought he won uh, he thought he won Florida, then he lost it, and then it was the recounts, and then I just kind of wondered what was it like to lose a place in history like that, 
And then you guys might know uh, that there's that f- documentary on Mitt Romney on Netflix called Mitt. Mm-hmm. And yes. it, it really shows you kind of that behind the scenes of what is it like, first of all, to run for president? And what is it, what, what is it like to lose the presidency? And, you know, it's almost like someone died, you know? And, and then in the documentary, he says something poignant that Americans are brutal to the people that lose and that they have this big L on their forehead. And that was before he lost. So, you know, it's almost like he's marching to his fate. And in some ways, he he's right. You know, that's what happens. They, they become quote-unquote losers. And I actually remember in the movie Naked Gun, the classic Leslie Nielsen film, there's this, uh, in this scene, they show this like little gallery of disasters and a totally non sequitur to the movie, but it's uh, there's they show the Hindenburg and the di- Titanic, and then there's Michael Dukakis, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of, it's kind of this mean dig at him, and you, and he wrote the intro to your book. So, with all that said, what led you to write this book? Tom asked me. <laughs> ah, okay. You so, know, I, I think that we we have been fascinated as you have uh, with. The, the what happens to these characters who have lost and have that L on their foreheads, so to speak. Are they really uh, losers or are they, they great men who have achieved an incredible level of success in their lives and uh, due to this, uh, the, the election, some close, not, some not so close, uh, they are remembered for the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly, and um, and the other thing too that helped provoke it was um, was Tom noticing uh, monuments like the one to Stephen Douglas in Chicago, um, commemorating his career, and it's it's a striking contrast between um, then and now. I mean, today we wouldn't think about building a statue to someone who lost the presidency, but the 19th century that wasn't considered um, necessarily as devastating a thing as we would imagine today. And so that contrast between the present and the past um, suggested itself as an interesting topic, particularly in the way in which Americans um, treat public memory. Right. And in the intro, uh, Professor James Kelly, he wrote that we should honor and remember these figures. And it, it's, it almost goes against this American ethos of, you know, Americans love winners. Um, why do you think that changed? And it, one thing I thought was really interesting, and I, one figure that I always found very interesting was Winfield Scott, uh, because here's a guy who was this great war hero, and he ran for the presidency, he lost, but then he continued to be respected. And I, I always thought that was very interesting, because nowadays, if you lose the presidency, it's like you have the scarlet letter on you. But here's a guy that lost. It, why was that the case? Why, why was it losing the presidency wasn't a big deal then than it is now? Well, I think partly because we're not we're not as big as we we are we were not as big as important as we were then. We were still a young country, and I think there was still this ethos that someone tried they they didn't succeed, but this country affords a lot of opportunities for other areas, and that's certainly the case in Winfield Scott. I mean, becoming president wasn't the only game in town, and Scott himself had not only a lifetime of achievement before he ran for president. But afterwards, he made very significant contributions to the countries, especially in regards to formulating 
um, the Anaconda Plan, which was ultimately the winning strategy for the Union in the Civil War. So again, I think um, the 19th century people had a more circumspect grasp of, of what it meant to run and lose for the presidency. And I think that's something that we lost um, as we became more powerful and more proud and, and so forth. So there were many reasons for Winfield Scott to be uh, commemorated with a fairly grand equestrian statue uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, in Scott's, Scott's Circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he looks like a hero uh, for many other reasons other than losing the, pres- the election, right, right. Uh, the presidential right. Ele- election. Now, one thing I've always kind of thought in my own head is that uh, just looking historically and even today, oftentimes candidates lose because, in my opinion, uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but of circumstances outside of their control, right? Like their party has no chance because of, for whatever reason, the other party's more popular, the other president, the, the other candidate's more popular. And yet we still blame them when they lose. When they lose, people are like, oh, he every, he did everything wrong. Was there a more nuanced view of that back then? Like when when Winfield Scott lost, do, did people not blame him? Did they just say, oh, well, you know, what can you do? You know, I mean, was it different? Was the attitude different? In the 19th century, many candidates didn't even, they didn't even go on the stump. They let other people do it for them. Um, so I think that in a part, um, remove some of the, uh, the the blame on them as individuals. I mean, they, they they allow themselves to be put forward, and then everybody else wrangles about it. So it wasn't seen as a as a personal failure. Um, only only I think in the age when the um, candidates became really part of the election process and and really you know barnstormed, could people say, well, they didn't do a good enough job. So I think that was part of what protected candidates in the 19th century. Right. Now, I love the approach y'all took with the book because uh, you didn't take the approach that this was going to be some, uh, you know, like, what is it? Like, it wasn't going to be like just text heavy. And there was a, a beautiful visual element to that. So you have campaign buttons, you have, I mean, pages are filled with just these portraits or these uh pictures of the statue. So what, how did you come to that approach? And uh, what was it like to just put that all together? How, how did you envision that? And, and how did you end up executing it? You know, I, I think that it's interesting because when we first uh, started to conceptualize the book, uh, there was an expectation, at least on my part, uh, that there was going to be one single uh, visual one single photograph to go with each of the the stories, uh, each of the candidates. And in putting the book together, uh, we realized that not only would they benefit from multiple pictures of the monuments, um, multiple angles, multiple crops, some close-up, some wide to give you a better context, um, but also the, the uh, historical photographs and the campaign buttons add a really rich layer uh, to, to the, uh, the, the content of the book, I think. And that really is due to the team at Trope, uh, uh, Trope Publishing, which uh, is really responsible for the 
the beautiful design and beautiful production of this book. Hmm. So did you, it looks like a lot of these for the statues, it looks like, did you go there and take the photo? I mean, there's, you know, photo of this great statue of Adlai Stevenson that I'd never seen before. Was that what you did? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would uh, travel quite a bit. Um, the the majority of the pictures uh, were taken by me. We did uh, do um, uh, purchase uh, stock photos for a number of the later candidates uh, who have no monuments or programs or buildings or highways named after them, uh, and just uh, had uh, photograph stock images from them for them from the uh, for, from the election and right. uh, campaigning. Um, so yeah, I would go and, uh, for instance, you know, do as much research as, as we could, uh, that particular Adley Stevenson, uh, um, statue was in an airport, uh, a three hour trip from Chicago, three or four hour trip. Uh, so that was within striking distance. Um, uh, I would, uh, squeeze in a, uh, presidential, uh, statue visit on business trips, on family trips, uh, and on a variety of uh, reasons to be in, in Phoenix or New York or, or Washington. Um, and uh, so um, it, it was a good way that we could start getting this uh, project completed. It was interesting. There, there were a number of candidates uh, that had multiple statues and multiple options. Um, and so that, that uh, uh, you know, put a, uh, a wrinkle in our plan sometimes. Uh, Henry Clay has a uh, statue in Lexington and a uh, fairly uh, grand monument and statue in uh, New Orleans. Um, so it, it was an interesting process, just the research aspect of it. That must have been a lot of fun. I mean, I'm looking at these photos and You've got Barry Goldwater in Arizona. You've got George McGovern in South Dakota, and I'm I've seen a, a picture of the Empire State. I mean, it, it, that must have been such a fun project, just traveling around and tracing the history of of elections, presidential elections, basically. It it, it really was uh, fun for me. I I usually take pictures of people, and so uh, people cause all kinds of problems. <laughs> um, and, and require a, uh, a, a lot of energy sometimes to elicit the kind of, uh, re response or reaction or sense of ease or whatever it is you're, you're trying to capture. Um, and so dealing with statues and, uh, monuments and treating it, uh, more like an architectural photographer, understanding light and timing and, uh, angles and, uh, really was, uh, was, was fun. And, and the, the McGovern's were, were photographed by my, uh, friend and colleague, Tom Maloney. There were certain, uh, destinations that I just knew as the book deadline was approaching that I was not going to be able to, uh, make the trip to Mitchell, South Dakota, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so Tom Maloney, uh, longtime, uh, friend and colleague, uh, took those, uh, McGovern pictures and they're beautiful. It's funny you mentioned Mitchell. Uh, my wife is her family is actually from South Dakota, so I've driven through Mitchell. I mean, I if I hadn't married her, I probably would have never <laughs> had a reason to be up there. Right. But uh, and I've I've always wanted to see the McGovern 
uh, the, you know, the, the, I think they have a museum there, but you know, we have, usually we're busy with like Christmas stuff going on up right. there and it's very snowy at that time. So I, I, <laughs> I, at least I get to see the photo. I, I want to see it in person one day to see the statue in the museum, but go on a beautiful sunny day. Yes. Yes. Hello. My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. So in the intro, Michael Dukakis talks uh, the the 1988 Democratic candidate who uh, who uh, lost to President George H W Bush. He talks about what a shame it is that the runners up basically have nothing to do after their run, or there's no kind of set duty that they have. Unlike say in the British system, where you know you, if you don't become prime minister, you, you're the, sh- the shadow prime minister. And so it's as if their talents are basically wasted. What are ways that runners-up have tried to contribute to society after their loss? Well, I think it's very important for any runner-up to have a plan B. I think um, all successful non-winning candidates should have a plan B. And in the case of Dukakis, he had a very fruitful one as a college professor in political science. Um, and helped inform generations of students in, in Boston and in Los Angeles at UCLA um, in terms of uh, policy making. Um, so I, and I think he's had a very content career there as well as being a participant, continuing being a behind the scenes participant in the Democratic Party. Um, I, I, think, I think since most of them were um, politicians to begin with, they either sort of um, retrenched and, and pursued um, other venues or they or they were at a point where they were old enough to retire and pursue um, uh, new challenges. Uh, Al Smith, for example, um, became the, uh, the manager of the Empire State Building project, um, which I think suited his abilities very well and, and create, in a sense created possibly the greatest monument to himself um, imaginable. Uh, I would certainly give it the prize above all the other monuments. Um, That's a fair point. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think I think thinking in those terms, and even Al Gore, after what was obviously a psychologically devastating loss, um, particularly for someone like himself who had been raised f- from very early on by his father to be president of the United States, he found a he found a role for himself, and he was able to even laugh at um, about the outcome of the election. And so I think. After a period of adjustment, he was able to find a role for himself. But it is uh, psychologically very um, difficult. Uh, although in the case of Dukakis, as disappointing as his presidential loss was for him, he had been psychologically prepared, in a sense, earlier in his career because he had been 
the governor of Massachusetts and, and been successful and then had a loss to an opposing candidate, which came as a complete shock to him and really set him into a kind of a difficult period from which he emerged psychologically stronger, able to come back, regain the governorship and, and have a more successful second term as governor and then make his run. So when he was when he had lost the presidential candidacy, he had prior experiences which primed him to deal with it, which I think is very important. I think I think if you run for president and it's the first big loss of your life, um, then it can be very, very devastating. But um, I think as long as you have some sense of where your talents can go elsewhere, um, you can have a very fruitful second act. Right. And I think I, I remember you talked about the humor aspect because Al Gore afterwards, I mean, he, he was always criticized for being stiff. But then afterwards, he goes on Saturday Night Live and he would always start his speeches on his, uh, I think it's, you know, the, the, the global warming slideshows. And he would always start, I used to be the next president of the United States. And, <laughs> and I think it's funny because there's this sense that for people that had he been kind of more loose like that, maybe he would have won <laughs> because people didn't see that humorous side of him until after his, his campaign. Yeah. And, and it may have emerged as a trait, as a consequence of his loss. I mean, one of the things about um, a psychological loss is that it has the power to affect personality change. Um, I think a great example of that in a non-political sense, um, someone once pointed out, was the boxer George Foreman, who was always this very grim, fierce person until he, he lost um, the, the battle to Muhammad Ali, which just totally threw him. But out of that emerged the warmer, gentler George Foreman, who has blessed the country with grills. Um <laughs> Thank and, God. And, and that guy is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> right. And the guy he was before wasn't so much. So in terms of personality reshaping, a loss like that can actually have um, ultimately a very positive effect on people who are, are too uptight and serious. They realize the world did not come to an end. And that suddenly loosens them up and they can enjoy life in a certain degree they didn't be, do before. And, and if I recall, Al Gore had been very successful in terms of winning elections all the way up to his loss. So it, it kind of fits that pattern that you that you said, where here he is not used to losing, and then boom, biggest loss that he could have ever imagined. Uh, now, speaking of Dukakis, did you interview any of the people that you covered in the book? Well, I, I chatted with the government Dukakis. Most of the people obviously are dead. Um, and and there were few sort of, um, there are few living candidates um, that had the time to really um, uh, uh, be able to talk to me. We did do an outreach to Governor Romney. Um, um, I think he was at a point where he wasn't quite ready to to talk about you know because with Go Governor Dukakis, twenty years had passed, he was ready. So, um, but he, he gave a nice response. So it was much more just basic research into people. But obviously, in the case of Dukakis. Um, I had a lot of information at hand. I was able to enrich the portrayal of him in, um, in, in the book. Um, so, although it is a little nervous writing about someone who's writing the forward to your book, it's like, sure, okay, I have to talk about well, why he didn't win. I hope he doesn't <laughs> expense. Right. Sure, we met him, and uh, Pete. It seemed like you you had a, a number of uh, common interests and connections. That uh, even the way that you met him. I think was uh, you know a good story, kind of a personal story, and so I, I imagine it was difficult to, uh, to to write 
you, you wrote objectively, uh, and, and you succeeded at that, but, uh, my yeah, gosh, yeah. a little, little dicey, a little tough. It was a little tough. I had a, I had a friend who had, who had taught with um, Governor Dukakis at Northeastern University, and he introduced me by email. He gave me an introduction. And then a week later, I bumped into the governor on the subway. Um, oh, wow. And I was, sit- I was literally sitting across from him. I just didn't have the guts to say anything, but my face was tortured. And, and uh, <laughs> Mrs. Dukakis looked over at me, and she nudged him and says, she says, Mike, I think this guy wants to talk to you. <laughs> and so um, with her, with her wonderful intervention, I was able to say, hi, governor, I'm Peter Shea. Jim, my friend, Jim Grenier introduced us. Oh yeah, yeah, I know Jim. And I just quickly pitched the party. He says, okay, no problem. Uh, send me an email and we'll talk. And, and so that's what got that. And that got me over the hoop then. So that was, and the funny thing is I've run into him on the subway since then. In, in uh, New York city. In Boston. In oh, Boston. in Boston. Oh, so he we have a small, we have a we have a wonderful subway system, but it's smaller. And and Dukakis has been um, using the uh, subway religiously for decades. So you know. Wow. So if you, if I go to Boston, there's a chance I'll st- I might run into him. I mean, he's almost ninety, and there he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's and so he met us out in front of the the uh, big transportation center that would had been named after him. And he just could not have been nicer and more welcoming for us and accommodating. I mean, yeah. it seemed like he he wasn't rushed at all. He was very happy to uh, talk to us, uh, pose for the pictures, and uh, just could could not have been better. Could not have he, been was, he was lovely, and he talked to us about other candidates. I mean, he had a wonderful story about Hubert Humphrey um, and how, as a young Democrat, you know. Um, uh, Supporter, he uh, was in a, you know helped the campaign, and um, Humphrey hmm. was in a situation where he just improvised a brilliant three-hour speech, um, and that shows you. And again, there's little glimpses of the aptitude of these people. What made them so impressive to their colleagues? Because some of that has been lost over time. We focus on on, on their on their failure to achieve things. We 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 often see them in the shadow of contemporaries who loom larger. So we lose out the details on who they were and what made them such essential players in the um, political system. Right. And, you know, I had always thought about, oh, it'd be great if we could get somebody who's like a, uh, somebody like Dukakis or someone who's run for the presidency and okay, they didn't win, but the angle I thought would be a good angle was that, look, it isn't that they ran and they lost. It's that they had this incredible experience just of running for president, which mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to wish on anybody right. and getting the nomination. And suddenly you're one of two people that the country has to choose from. Uh, that's, I've always thought that was an achievement in and of itself, but just the experience of that. I mean, this person had to prepare for debates in front of millions of people, global audience. And this person had to prepare for being president in the event that they won. And so for me, I that's kind of the angle I always thought would have been, instead of this, what is it like to lose? Mm-hmm. It's more of a, well, what was that like to even be there? Well, yeah, I think it uh, that whole discussion brings up the title of the book and the Theodore Roosevelt speech from, from which uh, the, the title is derived, um, that these candidates put themselves out there, committed to the level of energy and uh, pressure 
to to be in the arena at, at that level uh, is just an astounding commitment and and worthy of of praise uh, to begin with. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and and the core of the of the Roosevelt speech, and it's what's why it's really important, is that for a country to be successful, it doesn't require everyone to to win. It requires people to try. And it's when people become passive and sit on the sidelines and don't try and play it safe, then a crucial vitality is lost to the national community. Um, and that's why it's important to honor people who ran for president, even if they didn't ultimately win. Right. And you're talking about the famous quote Teddy Roosevelt uh, said when he it, in the arena, you know, that, that basically the credit belongs to the man who's actually fighting in the arena as opposed to people who are sitting on the sidelines. And it's funny because that quote has resonated in so many ways. I've seen not just people who love history talk about that quote, but athletes, you know, I've heard they they post that quote on their locker room. And so it it really resonates. And what you're saying almost is that the person who runs and loses for the presidency does a service to the country just by by uh, daring greatly, as Theodore Roosevelt said. Absolutely. Right. People remember the quote, but they forget the title of the speech, which is crucial, which is citizen in a republic. And which okay. is the idea okay. that citizens need to be people who attempt things because they have a role along with the power to affect um, the political community. They have a responsibility, so they have to get into the game. Um, they're not subjects, they're citizens. And so that's a crucial element. Right. So wanting to get into particular candidates now. So which of the people that you covered really surprised you? I mean, there are a lot of people. We, we like to sum up people's lives in just one sentence, right? Uh, oh, yeah, you know, Henry Clay, he ran for president so many times. That's all people know about him. But what, uh, which ones were the ones that really surprised you? I think most of them had something about them that I wasn't aware of, even the ones who are better known. Um, it is, you know, you know, with, with Clay, I, I've been familiar, as a history geek, I've been familiar with him, but I, I gained a better appreciation for the fact that um, Clay helped design the, the user manual for the American government in the decades after the Revolutionary War. We talk a lot about the Declaration, we talk about the Constitution, um, but those are blueprints. You've got to have someone actually work out an, an operating manual. And Clay was one of the people who said, okay, we can do this, this we'll try that, and so forth. And by the time it was done, it was, there were nice functional precedents that enabled a country that was growing in size and shape and region decade by decade, which is not an easy thing to do. It's hard enough to found a, a, a new nation in an established geographical zone, but when you have one that's growing leaps and bounds, that's an incredible creative challenge. And I think I didn't fully appreciate how much Clay had done until I did the formal research. I think that's a great example of, um, of someone who really, really surprised me. So I, I'm familiar with his, the compromises that he did to forestall the Civil War. In what ways did he kind of flesh out the, that manual that you talk about? Well, I don't think there was a speaker of the House of Representatives before him. Before there was a House, there's nothing in, I don't think there's anything in the Constitution that says there has to be a speaker. It says that there has to be a House of Representatives. But um, Clay would realize that, you know, if you're going to have a group this large, you're going to have somebody who needs to 
to, to, to lead the pack. And again, that was something that was established um, during Clay's time. And I think the other thing too is he had that reckon, he had that genius for compromise. He had principles, he had vision, but he also realized to move things forward, he had to um, horse trade with other people. And, you know, we often admire people who are very fixed political idealists. But unfortunately, if you're too rigid, you won't actually get anything done. You're simply going to stand for a principle. And Clay was, Clay practiced what we refer to in the book, for a quote, as responsible opportunism. He saw an opportunity, took it. He was able to bend um, and, and, and retreat from positions, but he was able to ultimately move forward. And his most important thing is he was able to keep a country together long enough so that when a really serious crisis like the Civil War broke out, it was strong enough to to resist it. If it had happened earlier in the history, it's quite possible that we would have fragmented into several smaller countries. Um, but Clay was able to balance the regions of the North and the South, and then eventually the West in collaboration with his colleagues, even though people from those regions were very regional. They had lived their lives in one region, and that's what they knew. And that's the priorities they wanted to follow. So getting people to think nationally when they were living regionally was a tough challenge. And I think he pulled it off, which is why he was such a role model for those who followed him. Including President Lincoln. Mm-hmm. He was a yeah. big fan. So it's almost like when you study these figures and you just mentioned a litany of contributions that Henry Clay had uh, provided for our country. It's almost like you kind of have to remind yourself no, 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 I'm not going to define this person by their losses. I'm going to define them by what they did. And their losses are part of their story, of course, but it's not the defining element. And that's something even I find uh, as a sports fan, right? Like when, when a team loses the championship, there's that debate. You know, it's kind of like, okay, they may not have won the championship, but they got to the championship. Do they get enough credit? And people look at, say, I mean, Peter, you're from New York, uh, the Buffalo Bills, right? I mean, there's this debate about when they went to the Super Bowl four straight times in the 90s. They didn't win a single one. But there are a lot of people that were saying, hey, they went to the Super Bowl four straight times. Now, I've heard people say, oh, well, they still didn't win. So it's it's kind of that 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 debate that even that we as a country have among sports fans. Right, exactly. I mean, Al Smith is a great example. I mean, he lost overwhelmingly to Herbert Hoover. But my God, he was the first Catholic candidate in the country that long believed that that was absolutely impossible. Um, and, you know, sometimes uh, we have candidates who are um, whose victory is that they they were trailblazers. They they helped clear a path. They didn't get to the end. But they made the road a lot smoother for those who followed them. And certainly um, Smith is, is one of those people who really helped open up um, pathways for uh, new citizens to become president. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.
There are two candidates I've always been very interested as far as how they even got close to the presidency, Aaron Burr and George McClellan. And I've always been interested in that because here's Aaron Burr. He's kind of one of the more vilified founders, famous for shooting and killing Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was really added to Jefferson's ticket to, to get kind of to get New York. Essentially, Jefferson would keep the South. Aaron Burr would get the North. And suddenly Aaron Burr almost wins the presidency because of a quirk in the electoral system. And you kind of think, okay, now it, of all the founders, you know, we had what five founders as presidents, right? Uh, ish, right? So Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, we were so close to getting Aaron Burr. He, he almost became of all the founders. He almost became president. How the heck? And then the same with George McClellan. Here's a guy who history has not been kind to him as a general in the civil war. And yet the Democrats nominated him for president. He almost Lincoln actually thought he would lose to McClellan at one point. How did that happen? How did these guys get to that point where they almost become the, the president? Well, we asked that question because we're looking at them from a 21st century viewpoint. Um, Aaron Burr didn't become famous for shooting someone until after he, he tried to become president. That Fair was, point, yes. And he, he's a great example of someone who didn't didn't use the experience to generate positive energy. He's the anti-type. He's the one you don't want to be like. Don't follow a presidential election by murdering someone. Um, bad <laughs> career path. Um <laughs> So Burr at that time was a respected member of the, of the political establishment. He had great credentials. He Again, he fought in the Revolutionary War, which was an almost essential quality of people running for main office, um, either being in the content of the Congress or being in the Army. It was a precursor. He had a great pedigree. Um, his grandfather was Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous preachers in America. He was, uh, I mean, he was, again, he was... He was an establishment candidate. He was so. Aaron he didn't come Burr, out of nowhere. He didn't come, he didn't out, come of out of nowhere. I mean, and he wound up being famous for killing someone who came came from nowhere. So there was a tension between an establishment figure and a non-establishment figure who had become part of the new establishment. So there's a, a fascinating tension out there. Um, and again, Burr, Burr's reputation is is. Who, as we've seen him, is something that grew in the decades afterwards, um, not only because of the killing of, of Hamilton, but in his attempt to um, help take a portion of the United States and pull away from the United States. I mean, that says something about the, not only the time, but about the man. That's how um, you follow up after murdering somebody, is yes, you try to create an empire. Build yeah. someone. Let me see if right. I can disunion the country. Um, I mean, he, yeah, he, there was a lot of negative energy there. Um, so, um, so that was that was the case. But Burr is a fascinating reminder that that, that, that a lot of our founding fathers were not saints. Um, he was there. He was part of the revolutionary generation, uh, and they were all very ambitious people. But most of them were able to keep it in check. He didn't, and he was a man of considerable ability. I mean, I mean he was in many ways a brilliant figure, but he had significant character flaws, which is something we're going to see later on in history as well, because we're going to jump down to Richard Nixon, a man of really remarkable political abilities, considerable intelligence, considerable creativity in regards to foreign policy, but whose presidency is destroyed by his own character flaws, not by external enemies. So there's a pattern which we start with Burr and goes down the, the, uh, down the decades to other candidates. Hmm. And with McClellan, he was not at all a surprise a candidate. Um, 
because he was still wildly popular and he was seen as being shoved to the side by um, uh, a president who was, who again, at the time was not, he, Abraham Lincoln didn't become Abraham Lincoln until after he dies. Um, he was a very then, partisan figure at that time. Partisan figure, kind of clumsy, a compromised candidate, somebody nobody wanted, but we'll put there because we got to have somebody until we get somebody we really like. So the likelihood of him being voted out of office in 1864 was quite possible. And McClellan was, was the perfectly logical candidate um, for the Democrats because he was obviously in opposition to, to um, he was a national figure in opposition to Lincoln. And he was widely known and respected within the army community as well. So he, he was a very good, probably the best candidate they could have put forward. Because again, the Democrats were facing the fact that in 1864, many of their major figures from 1860 were now working for the enemy. So they had to really put someone popular forward. Um, so McClellan, I think, was a smart candidate for the time. And had he stayed on and, and won some more victories, um, it would have almost been a shoo-in. Um, so, and again, the McClellan that we remember is the McClellan who wrote all those nasty notes about Lincoln, and which were published after McClellan dies. Um, so, McClellan right. had a lot of fans, though, as uh, if we base it on the scale of his monument in Washington, beautiful equestrian statue on a marble pedestal that is just absolutely staggering in scale. Um, and so he had fans, and history has not been kind to him since then, uh, but uh, he, he was well-recognized at the time. Yeah. Right, and of course, at the time, it wasn't as clear <clears throat> that uh, the Union would triumph, and once it did, once Lincoln won, he becomes the winner, and everyone else kind of becomes the sideshow, like McClellan. Uh, but of course, at the time, at the moment, that's not what was being perceived, you know, Lincoln was actually preparing for his potential defeat to McClellan. Now, one person I always thought was very interesting was Horace Greeley, because here's a guy who was kind of this eccentric uh, publisher, uh, you know, newspaper publisher who was all over the place in terms of his issues and uh, a bit of a sensationalist. And then <clears throat> suddenly he gets the nomination to run against Ulysses Grant for president. It's, it's kind of a bizarre moment in American history. So how did, what did you guys learn about him and, and how did all that happen? Um, well, Tom can certainly talk about his statue, which is an interesting one. And in York, one of the best examples of the 19th century architecture that we've seen. I mean, finally somebody who's not on a horse. Um, <laughs> Greeley, uh, Greeley, as a candidate, his clear contribution, I think, was that he established the precedent that someone from the president, sitting president's own party, can challenge him, because he was a Republican, and uh, he represented a faction of Republicans who were not satisfied with the Grant presidency, but rather than waiting until Grant was done with the presidency, he said, "No, we, this is too important." So. The, 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 that faction joins with the Democrats and they create an almost almost like parliamentary-like collaboration to be a candidate and um, to challenge Grant. Now, obviously, Grant's popularity is such that he, he, he obliterates Greeley in the election, but Greeley has set a precedent saying we someone who is president isn't guaranteed 
only a challenger from the opposing party. If there is significant dissatisfaction, his own party can challenge him. And so he introduces that note into American politics. And although it's not done frequently, it was done since then. The most, probably the most famous example, uh, examples would be Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, um, and then um, Ted Kennedy's abortive attempt in, in, um, in 1980 to try to rustle the, the, the Democratic uh, nomination from Jimmy Carter in 1980 before giving up on that effort. I think of Kennedy as an honorary also ran. Um, and as another good example of someone who, even though his attempt failed, it had a positive effect on him overall because it released him from having to run again and focus his energies where he really was suited, which was the Senate. And, and again, for, for Roosevelt, I think psychologically, that was healthy too because he, he really he really regretted not taking advantage of a third term, and he and he didn't agree with um, Taft's approach, so he he wanted to challenge. So that so Greeley's contribution was to open up political avenues in our culture which were not previously there. Um, and again, his his achievements outside of politics speak for themselves. I'd also mention when Reagan ran against Ford. In 1976. Right. Yeah. Now, that's fascinating. I never thought of it that way because Greeley, first of all, he, he died a few weeks after, which kind of created this unique situation where suddenly these electors had um, had to vote for people, random people, because their, their candidate that they were pledged to died. So uh, heaven forbid that happened today. But I mean, that's pretty big news, right? The, the presidential candidate dies before the electoral count had it had it been the winning candidate that would have been even more hairy i think for the country but with all that said i i hadn't thought about that because the previous presidents that served only one term like the rutherford hayes's and well actually that was before grant but let's say franklin pierce and uh, a number of those figures, a lot of them just kind of, they either didn't run or maybe they saw the writing in the wall and they said, the party's not going to renominate me. But Greeley was the first to kind of say, no, I'm going to take on the guy that's president right now, uh, which is very interesting to me. Do you know kind of the story of how he ended up running? I mean, you know, he, he was a very unconventional candidate. Wasn't As far as I know, he didn't have kind of a conventional political career. He he was a contrarian. He part of what made really really was that he was willing to take stands, um, even on things that were running against the public grain, um, and that's certainly informed his approach to journalism. Um, and I think that quality in him saw the Grant Republic uh, presidency as failing, um, in spite of what he his, in spite of his personal regard for Grant, he felt that Grant simply wasn't successful chief executive and that could eventually having inadvertent harm to the country. So he, you know, he, he thought that other people felt the same way and that somebody had to step forward. But he, and he was enough of a, I said, a, a quirk. They said, I guess it's going to have to be me. Um, so it was, it was a very quixotic candidacy to, to certainly. Um, but he was probably the best, best known person in the country who was even willing to, to run against Ulysses as Grant. Um, so again, otherwise, uh, the person who was the candidate would have been someone unmemorable. But I mean, the fact, again, the, introducing the idea that your own party can criticize you is really important rather than just rally around the reader. He says, no, in a democracy, we have to have a public dialogue about the quality of leadership. 
and, and, that, and that even if that means jeopardizing our own party's um, hold over national power, our larger role as citizens requires it. Mm-hmm. So uh, another figure that I think uh, is very fascinating, compelling in this among the the runners up is uh, William Jennings Bryan, and one th- fact of his that I always find fascinating was that he was 36 when he became the nominee for president. I'm 38, so it's you know I'm just thinking, man, I, I can't imagine he must have it must have been crazy for him to leapfrog all these other candidates. So, what did you learn about him? How did he catapult so quickly to that level, uh, and and stay at that level? Obviously, he never won the presidency, but he ran three times as the nominee. What What did you learn about him? Well, I think, you know, again, if you see it through a 19th century frame, 36 to us seems very young, but that 36 in the 19th century is uh, more than half your life is over. Um, so it wouldn't have been strange for him to run it. Plus, he was um, in his prime. So when he gave his famous Cross of Gold speech, he had the best possible political debut um, one can imagine, particularly at a moment when the Democratic Party was was uh, still orienting itself towards um, the large agrarian parts of the country, which were felt um, were being pushed out of the um, emphasis on the cities. Um, Democrats did have a lot of um, supporters in the cities, and unfortunately, that alienated many people in the, in, in the Midwest and other parts of the country. Um, which were not as immigrant-heavy and felt that they weren't being heard anymore or appreciated. And Brian, you know, was able to speak for them, for who were disaffected, you know, and channel their their disaffection and their anger into um, uh, positive um, political action. Um, so I think that was his great achievement. He, without a Bryant figure in um, in American history at that time. I think there might have been a lot more violent episodes going on in the country because, again, we're trying to navigate being a continent-wide country where we have huge chunks that are very different from one another, and yet we have to come around a single leader every four years. And that's uh, proven to be incredibly difficult um, in many places. And Brian was one of the people who helped maintain that equilibrium. And, uh, and that's something that we should remember about him. And unfortunately, we remember other things about him, which is he's, he's one of those people who, who has the greatest disadvantage in his post-life reputation, I think. And, uh, he, the story of the, his statue and monument has an interesting backstory as well. Uh, he, it, it's a testament to his popularity that his, his statue... Uh, you know, dramatic moment, uh, looks like he's giving a speech in brass, you know, very powerful pose with his hand outstretched, um, was unveiled on the National Mall by uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. But uh, less than 20 years later, it was removed because of, uh, you know, I think it was road construction, uh, necessary road construction in Washington. And so the statue got removed, and uh, his political star had fallen in, in the decades uh, since the unveiling, and it was just relegated to a uh, an outdoor storage area in, in Washington or outside of Washington. And so uh, the people of uh, Brian's hometown uh, found out about this and inquired, could we come and pick it up and install it into uh uh, a park in his hometown of Salem, Illinois. 
and uh, they in fact uh, did it, uh, drove a truck out there, put William Jennings on, on the back of their truck, and, uh, and, and now he is uh, proudly and uh, heroically uh, preaching to the uh, empty park in Salem, Illinois, um, uh, in Bryan Park. Um, so it, it, it's, uh, it, it's interesting just the, the, the history of the, the, the history of remembering has, was, was shifted. And uh, that was an important story for us and, and kind of uh, reminded us um, what has happened to the discussion of monuments and memorials uh, throughout our, uh, just the, uh, when, when we started this project, uh, you know, six or seven years ago, uh, the discussion of monuments and uh, uh, the, the relevance of of statues in the park didn't seem to be taking a central uh, uh, part of the national discussion like it is now. Um, so it's uh, it, it was it's been interesting for us to uh, to to see that shift in the the, the national mood uh, where uh, we understand now that it, statues and monuments and you know who, who's getting a school named after them or a road named after them is very important to the national conversation. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Now, moving to the 20th century, uh, two guys who sustained devastating losses in the in their presidential races, but arguably were more influential in the years to come. You had Barry Goldwater and you had George McGovern. And there's actually a great video I saw in uh, Barry Goldwater, who ran for president against Lyndon Johnson, lost in a landslide. And uh, George McGovern, who ran for president eight years later against Nixon and lost in a landslide. And yet both of them had were very influential in the long term. Um, from what I read, uh, McGovern had come to the presidency or uh, became a candidate around the time that demographically the parties were changing a lot and they restructured a lot of their rules to be more inclusive. And he was a big figure in that. And of course, Barry Goldwater considered by many to be the, the godfather of the modern conservative movement. So what, what did you guys learn about those two as you did research on the book? Well, Goldwater was the first one we started with. So um, we looked at him with a, with a really clear eyes and again, Goldwater having made his attempt and failed was free to go back to the Senate and be, and be one of the, um, senior figures, um, who was respected in regard, uh, and played a very constructive role. And, and, um, and I think that's a good example of someone who found a good post presidential election, um, role to play. And I think, again, sometimes it helps for certain figures to run 
and get it out of their system and then move on to back to what they're really good at. I, I think Goldwater would have had challenges had he been elected. Um, and like you said before, he helped godfather the conservative movement until it was being led by someone who had more of a presidential temper, um, which was um, obviously Ronald Reagan. Um, McGovern, again, is someone who was able to respond to his loss in a positive way, um, partly but through a sense of humor. He said, I, I always wanted to run for president in the worst way, and gosh darn, I, I eventually did. <laughs> um, but McGovern obviously did not have to deal with the, um, with the shame and uh, disgrace that the man who beat him experienced. So McGovern ran an honorable candidacy, lost, and then continued to be a good public servant, whereas um, Richard Nixon had a, a, a truly epic fall. Um, so I think in both senses, both men um, were able to play a positive role. And interestingly enough, Goldwater was one of the people who was sent to Nixon to tell him it's, it's time's over. You kind of leave. Um, oh, wow. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, sometimes um, not becoming president can be a blessing in disguise for people. Um, if Goldwater had um, become president, um, I don't know if he would have been a two-term president. I don't know whether or not. Um, the legacy of having to deal with um, uh, Vietnam and other things would have been, but but by remaining, he was able to stay longer and have a productive career because obviously, one of the disadvantages of becoming president is that the clock is ticking, and uh, if you do two terms, it's understandable that you're going to leave politics because you've got to the top job. Very few very few people are willing to do what John Quincy Adams did, which was to become president and then join the House of Representatives. I mean, right. it's just, it's seen as a step back. Mm -hmm. um, but not so much, obviously, the 19th century, which again emphasizes how differently they looked at things than, than we do. So, um, so, Which of the people you covered do you think overcame, best overcame that stigma of, of losing the presidency? And this might only apply mainly to the more recent ones, the 20th century 21st century, but which ones do you think were able to have a successful post-presidential career, or the, the most successful? Well, I, I, you know, I'll give my answer, and then a lot of time weigh in. But I, I think, um, I think there, there's no one outstanding candidate. I think there are several who understood that what they really should aim for is achievement, as opposed to fame or power which meant they could continue to function effectively behind the scenes. Thomas Dewey, I think, continued to make a great contribution um, to the country and to his party behind the scenes after his defeat in um, 48. And um, he was, like, like with Goldwater, he became one of the wise men of his party who was able to, to offer um, a moderating voice on, on things and, and, get, and move things in the right direction. So there's still you can still have a gravitas even, even post-defeat. Um, so Dewey is one of my favorite. Stevenson again would be another one. Uh, fascinating to be to be nominated twice and to be defeated twice, and yet still be a, a beloved figure. Um, again, he was able to contribute, you know, to the country as the ambassador to the UN, at a, particularly at a moment in time when being the ambassador to the UN was probably the most important time in the history of the United States involvement with the UN. Um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they continue to make contributions and enjoy life. I think that's an important thing. So I think that's an essential capacity in a presidential candidate. So Tom, what do you think? 
I, I think Mitt, Mitt Romney and John Kerry are two recent examples of people who have uh, found uh, uh, ways to serve in an effective and uh, a meaningful way. And uh, we'll see, uh, you know, particularly Mitt Romney, where, where his story leads. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Do you think that uh, of the current crop of candidates that uh, that that are still alive, of the people that you covered, um, do you think that that role is evolving into something different uh, than than in the past of of those candidates who became runners up? I don't think there is a clear path yet. That's the default for a losing candidate. I think everyone has to sit in and reflect what's best for me. Some obviously um, can re-enter politics in the case of Mitt Romney. Others can take their experience and enter academia like Michael Dukakis. Um, others just decide I'm going to retire, but I'm going to be an advisor to, to various organizations. Um, that That's always valuable. There is no one template. And it's not just, I think, true of American candidates. It's, um, it's also true of leadership candidates in other countries, I think, um, particularly in, say, Britain, where you can be a prime minister and then you're not prime minister, and then you have literally decades left to deal with your life. You can either be a backbencher or you can join or you can join businesses and things like that. I think as long as whatever you do is seen as, as, as contributing to the public good, um, it's an honorable um, uh, pathway. Um, and I don't think it necessarily it has to be high profile. I think one of the differences between now and, and the say the 19th century or the 18th century is that in the before there was an assumption that fame and achievement were closely linked in the 21st century we have turned fame without achievement into an art form um, so that the idea of being kind of famous has become kind of a debased coinage so as long as you're aware of the fact that you may not become as famous as becoming as, as consequence of being president you can do a lot of things afterwards that um, lead to a meaningful experience. And again, a good example would be Jimmy Carter. He won, but he, the, the president was seen as a failed presidency. So he, he dealt with a stigma that was as great or as greater than being a failed candidate. And yet he has created a model for spending decades playing various roles that contributed to the national and the international community. I, I really think it's a mindset of the person. So if you had to change, if you could change the result of a past election and make one of the guys that you covered as president, the fun parlor game question. Uh, so what, uh, who would you choose? If there's one person that you're like, oh, you know, we really missed out on a great president. Who, who would you choose? Tom, you go first. No, Pete, I, I think of our, our discussions over the years as, as this book came together. You, you had a lot of good what-ifs, you know, uh, the, the Disney animatronics uh, being, being one of them, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the idea being that in the, in the whole of presence of Disney World, we should have the failing candidates alongside the... Oh, uh, that would be know, cool. That would be cool. Um, <laughs> Um, honestly, in my heart of hearts, I'm a Charles Evans Hughes guy. I think Chuck would have been great. <laughs> hmm. um, and he was an example of someone whose post-presidential um, run career was equally distinguished and more distinguished. In fact, it really 
the golden age of his contributions to the, to, the, to the country really came after he ran and he was able to serve later on as a very effective Secretary of State and then to rejoin the Supreme Court, which is where he was really happiest. He was kind of um, drafted into becoming president, but he ran, made an honorable run, he failed, and then was still a point where his talents were able to be used for um, at least a decade and a half afterwards. And I, and I think I think he would have been a terrific, um, terrific president. So you mentioned, okay, so just for those who might not know, Charles Evans Hughes was a, a, a member of the Supreme Court and then he became the nominee, Republican nominee against Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. Almost when Woodrow Wilson was running for re-election, almost won. Mm-hmm. It was a very close race, but he lost. And then he went back to the Supreme Court, which is a fascinating story because, I mean, it's the only example I know of where a Supreme, a member of the Supreme Court became the nominee for president, uh, which is its own story. So that's a that's a fascinating choice. So. And it's int- it's interesting that uh, the uh, your your choice, Pete, because uh, unfortunately Charles Evans Hughes was uh, his his period was uh, past the golden age of monuments and memorials uh, in in the grand tradition. Uh, so in the book we have a picture of a room that the Charles Evans Hughes room at the New York Bar Association in New York. Uh, that has a bust of of him and a uh, painting, a portrait of him. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that there were no uh, or very few choices as to what the visual memory or reminder uh, or monument would have been for Charles Evans Hughes. Hmm. By by accident of the the era, it sounds like and the exactly. artistic was exactly. popular. Yeah. How about you, Tom? Who would you flip the script on? Boy, I don't know. I'll I'll, uh, I'll defer to Pete Pete's answer on that one. Okay. okay. <laughs> so two for two for Justice Hughes. Yeah. yeah. Although, of course, the 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 easy answer is Hillary Clinton, right? Ah. <laughs> uh, well, that would have changed a lot of things. That would have been oh for my sure. gosh, that, that, that yeah, yeah. would have been a, a, a dramatic shift in uh, in our past five years. Right. Well, Charles Evans Hughes, I mean, I think it would have just been fascinating to see a member of the Supreme Court become president. I mean, it, you know, flipped from what happened with Taft where, you know, but to go from the court and then to the presidency would have, would have been such a fascinating thing. But and, and as Tom pointed out, they really thought he was going to win so much so that um, Wilson had a, had a plan, had an interesting plan. Uh, that if he had lost to Hughes, he was going to appoint Hughes Secretary of State and then resign, so there wouldn't be a, a lame duck period. Oh, um, oh wow! So because he felt during World War One, there was just there was too many crucial moments that required full presidential leadership and power. So Wilson, who had who had worked in the same law college as, as as Hughes, and they moved in the same circles, would have been quite confident to say, you know, you take it from here and uh, and I'll go. So that would have been inter- that would have been a fascinating scenario. So every four years, somebody loses the presidency, and uh, obviously sometimes it's it's somebody it's a president who loses the presidency, or it's somebody who is not the incumbent loses. After doing all the research for this book and learning about all those runners up in in American history, what advice do you have for that person 
who who loses? How do you what what should they do to move on from the election and and say serve in other ways? And I and I ask that knowing uh you know with the uh idea that you've done the research, you've seen the you've read the stories of the people that had to do that. What what are kind of the best practices for that? Uh I would I would certainly ask the candidate um has being has been being president of the United States, has that been your lifelong dream? Because if it is, then I would be worried. Um, if it's merely the accumulation of your professional aspirations, then I would say there are many pathways. And please look, remember that the people who lost, you're joining an honorable fraternity um, of people. And, um, and, and they all can, their lives can give you some guidance on what to do next. And whatever you do, um, don't, dwell over much on the fact that you lost. You went in knowing that you could lose, even if in your heart of hearts you really believed you were the better candidate and you could have done a better job for the country. Uh, If you're lucky, um, the winning candidate will prove your point for you, Um, thus enhancing your um, post-defeat reputation in ways you cannot possibly imagine. Um, Let, Let them slay themselves. Basically. Right. Let let them let let them do it, and then you can just look to the country and said, "You you had a choice. You had a choice. <laughs> I told you so." Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I guess that's what those "Don't blame me. I voted for so and so" stickers <laughs> right, basically right, right. are for. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Well, uh, Peter and Tom, thank you so much for being on the show and just uh, talking about your book. The book is called "In the Arena." A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. It's pretty much hot off the presses, so we, uh, you know, we we love being able to talk about this book. It's beautiful in every way. It's beautiful visually, and the the profiles are great. So thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we've yeah. really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, this Richard. Is great, Richard. And I'd like to make one more point that I didn't make earlier about the visuals. You know, you may have noticed in Tom's approach. The way that the, the, the photo is printed reflects the age in which the time in which the candidate ran. So you have a Kodachrome look for like Barry Goldwater, but you have right. a 19th century sepia tint for the older candidates. So that's one of the, I think, visual pleasures of the book. That's great. So it really immerses you in the eras. Yes, it's been uh, quite a trend to uh, colorize uh, images lately. Uh, so that they feel more modern. Essentially, we wanted to do the opposite. We wanted to transport the the viewer, the reader, uh, back to uh, the era in the era in which these candidates ran. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for your interest, Richard. Thanks, Richard. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing. You can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events 
that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.